You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Joyce Wayne, who's an award-winning literary journalist, a former editor at Quill and Quire, and the author of the historical novel The Cook's Temptation, which came out in 2013. For many years, she was the head of the journalism program at Sheridan College in Canada, where she launched the Sheridan Center for Internationally Trained Individuals. And it sounds like the some a superhero group, but uh, we could talk a little bit about that later. Uh, she was also the winner of the Diaspora Dialogue Contest for Short Fiction and has been awarded the Fiona Mee Award for Literary Journalism. She is also the author of the new book, Last Night of the World, which is a spy historical fiction. And that's why she's here. We're delighted to talk to you. Welcome, Joyce, and thank, thank you for taking, taking the time to talk, talk to us here at Spycast. Oh, it's a pleasure to so, so looking at this book, I, I, I tend to take these books, because we get a bunch of them, and, and I basically read the first chapter and then decide if I'm going to continue to read. And it, it hooked me from the beginning, and without knowing anything about you. I, later on is when I investigate the authors. But it's really interesting. I want to ask you about the idea for this book, because when I read later on that there's a ton of family history involved in why you decided to write this. Can you, Can you talk, talk a little bit about, about that? that? Yes, I, I can gladly. I I've known this story my really my entire life. My father was involved in the story uh, from Montreal and Ottawa. And as I grew older, he began to tell me uh, a lot of the details that actually appear in the story. He was a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s, and he knew some of the players that I have featured in the book. So I always want to know this question about people who decide in the 30s. I assume he was an ideologue. I assume he thought uh, he didn't know, like everyone else, what was actually happening inside the Soviet Union and, and, and was, was seduced by the promise of communism. Exactly. He, he didn't know at all. And, and he left the party in 1947 as soon as he found out what Stalin was doing 
in the Soviet Union. But there was that period of time when they really didn't know, or if they knew, they didn't want to. They really didn't want to admit it to themselves what was going on there. So yeah, he was an idiot. And so you've known this story, like you said, you've heard a lot bits and pieces of it throughout your life. Why did you decide now to take this book on? Well, for one thing, everyone in the book is dead. I think a lot of people out there will understand that concept, certainly when it comes to things like classification and everything else. Uh-huh. So there's no one really left who, um, who was involved in the story. So I waited. And also, it took me a certain maturity as a writer to be able to grapple in a fictional way with the complexity of what it meant to be a spy before World War II and during World War II in Canada and the United States if you were spying for the Soviet Union. So I want to ask you, why historical fiction? Why not a straight nonfiction book? Is there a, a reason that this genre is so popular and what, what does it allow you to do that you couldn't do if you just wrote a footnoted, straightforward nonfiction monograph? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that's been done. Um, Amy Knight's book on how the Cold War started is a fabulous nonfictional, footnoted, academic treatise on what happened when Igor Gazenko defected from the Soviet embassy to the Mounties in Ottawa. And I, um, I must say that I used her book and other books. But the primary reason is it's so creative. It's so fun. First of all, um, it is fiction. It's based on real-life characters. But you can decide to make them do what you want them to do to a, certain, to a certain extent. And you can also build, you know, you can build character. And you can begin to understand. The main character is Rita Linton, this rather glamorous spy uh, for the Soviets, um, who was very good at, at coaxing information from high place people with government and and in the bureaucracies, so I could imagine her quite fully. So I'm not a huge reader of historical fiction. I've read some here and there. Are you a reader? Are you some, did you read a lot of historical fiction and kind of figure out how to do this? I did. I did. Well, I wrote one novel before that, right. that's Victorian England, as you mentioned so kindly, and I spent a long time researching it, went to England, so forth, read endless numbers of, of of historical fiction, everything from something that you might call pulp fiction to very serious historical fiction. But I also really like spy fiction. So I'm such a great fan of someone like Jean Le Carré that that influenced me greatly. Is there a noticeable difference between historic fiction when it's done well and when it's done badly? I mean, are, are there, are there for, for the listeners out there who, like me, may not have the time. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of time to read for fun, let alone uh, read things that um, kind of fall into this middle ground between fiction and nonfiction. Is, is there who are the, who are the best, best people, people out there doing this work? Well, I really like an English writer. The English are very good at this, as you might imagine. And there's an English writer uh, called Sarah Waters who writes fiction set in Victorian England. I would say that she is absolutely the best writing right now. And if anyone wants to get a taste for historical fiction, that's that's where I start. You know, Margaret Atwood, uh, alias Grace, is very good, and it's actually um, up on Netflix right now, too. It's been turned into a miniseries. And she's very good at it as well. So women seem to be particularly able. Uh, William Boyd 
wrote, another English writer wrote a very good historical spy novel called Restless. And um, I, I, was, I was quite influenced by that because it's about a... You don't read too many historical novels about women's spies. Right. Well, I think one of the great things about it is people are learning history without really knowing that they're learning history. They think they're reading a fun novel and they're actually picking... I mean, just looking at yours, yes, you've got to go perhaps make sure what you're, what's real and what's not after the fact, but there's, there's tons and tons of history inside your book. You learn about Guzenko and about even things like Kim Philby and others. Uh, with, but you think, you think you're, you're reading, reading a novel? Well, I, I, I am reading. I mean, it is a novel, but it is based on historical fact. So the question becomes, if you're a writer or you're interested in becoming a writer of this sort of, uh, this sort of novel, is how far do you, how far can you stretch it from actual history? How far can you let your imagination go, and how much do you have to rein it in to make sure that the story still holds true to a great extent? For instance, when when Igor Gazenko defects uh, from the Soviet embassy in Ottawa, in my book it happens quite closely to exactly how it happened. It happens on the same day. It happens the way I write it, which is he went. He had a cache of 200 documents. He was a cipher clerk. Jan called back to the Soviet Union because he had, you know, done something mischievous or something, nothing serious. And he didn't want to go back. He had a wife and a child, and his wife was pregnant, and life in Canada was very good. So when I was a university student in Ottawa, I walked by his apartment almost every day for six years on Somerset Street. And we all knew that that was where Gazenko lived and where he defected from. So he took 200 documents, and um, as a cryptographer, of course, he could decode them for the RCMP, for the Mounties. I tell that story almost exactly the way it happened. He went to the Ottawa Journal in Ottawa uh, late at night, around midnight, and he got sent away. Um, by the night editor who thought he was joking and that someone was playing a trick on him. Yeah, and he, sent, he spent a very lonely night inside his apartment waiting for the KGB to kick, well, NKVD to kick down his door. That's right. They were terrified. I mean, he, you know, he knew what would happen to him if the GRU or the NKVD got him. So he went over to the Department of Justice in Ottawa, trying, waiting until the guard would let him in, which he wouldn't until the building opened, trying to see the Minister of Justice. Minister of Justice didn't believe him either. So he finally found a soft-hearted, he finally found a soft-hearted secretary to the Minister of Justice, and he said he was going to commit suicide if they didn't do something. So they put him in a taxi and sent him to the Ottawa police. You know, Ottawa, if you can imagine it, was a very sleepy log town in 1945. Uh, it hadn't really changed that much when I lived there in the 70s and 80s. Well, and people people are maybe out there listening to this or, or applying historical hindsight to realize that the, the Soviets become the bad guy during the Cold War. But in this case, Canada and the Soviets had just won a war together. And there was no reason to think the Soviets were potentially spying on us. Exactly. 
exactly, precisely. And it's hard for people to imagine how friendly we were with the Soviets. In Montreal, uh, Eaton, which would be comparable to Macy's in the U.S., was flying the Soviet flag um, during the war. I mean, they were our best friends. And so there was absolutely no reason to think in this way that it possibly that they could be having... I mean, they had such a huge firing working in Canada, really on the atomic bomb, trying to get the signature of the atomic bomb. What, what I love about your book is that you take the perspective of, I'm putting this in quotes, the bad guy. You know, Frida Linton, you know, is a Soviet spy. So this might be an obvious question, uh, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Why pick her and not, say, Gazenko himself or Zabotin or, or, or Vine, uh, these other very colorful characters? Why, why, why Linton? Linton? Well, I became fascinated with her personally. I mean, I think she was instrumental in what happened. And she has been ignored or written out of history. It's always Zabotin or Gazenko uh, or Fred Rose, really. Who, in Canada, the Fred Rose story reverberates because he was a member of Parliament uh, and the only member of Parliament for the Communist Party, and the only one uh, since then. But Frida was was a fascinating character. I mean, she was sleeping with all sorts of very powerful men in government, and I felt that I could tell a woman's story better than I could a man. So what what about historical novels I find interesting is that you, you really have to know this story. Like, you, you probably, if you'd wanted to, you decided not to, and because you gave obvious reasons that has been done before, probably if you wanted to, you could write a nonfiction book about these people because the amount of research that you have to do. Can you talk a little bit about the research that went into writing this work of kind of in the middle ground between fiction, fiction and nonfiction? nonfiction. I did a lot of research. Now, I have to go back and say that I knew the story pretty well from my father, who was quite a bright fellow and was a very precise type of person, if you know what I mean. And so as I grew older, he could see I was, you know, I was, I was an academic and I was interested in academic subjects. He told me more and more, and he didn't have anyone to talk to because he left Montreal moved to a small city in southern Ontario, opened a business, and hid, really, in many ways from life. He was broken by what happened mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. He didn't, he didn't recover after he found out what Stalin was doing. I was amazed by some of the descriptions of the environments that you described from some of these small Soviet or Ukrainian towns. Um, is that dramatic license, or are those areas that you went to or researched? Or is, there, there are some pretty deep and vibrant descriptions of some of these small towns in the middle of nowhere behind oh, the Iron Curtain. Yes. Uh, well, Nesvich is the town where my father's family came from. My father was born there. I did visit it, and my father talked about it, and my aunts and uncles, who are all gone now, um, they talked about it as well. So uh, they left in, um, in the 1920s because they couldn't survive once the revolution happened. My grandfather had a shoe factory, and it was confiscated by the Soviets. So they had to get out. Um, I, I did first-hand research, and I knew first-hand research, Vince, because the stories... I have pictures in my study 
of the family from Nesvich. Um, many of them were killed during Second World War by the Germans. So I mean, this really is firsthand knowledge from your family. I mean, I imagine if they had stayed, or if they had been able to stay in the area, they would have been neighbors with the characters inside your book. They would have been neighbors, or they would have, I mean, everyone who stayed in Nesvich, any of the family who stayed, uh, died. Because by 1942, everyone in the occupied land who was Jewish was dead. Right. So the people who stayed weren't around. People who left uh, did very well. Most of them moved to America, some to Canada, and they flourished in North America. Let me yeah. ask you, how much dramatic license did you take in kind of getting inside the head of your characters? I, I know there, there's obviously internal monologues that happen. Your book is written in the first person from, from your character. Um, but was there research that backed up kind of the psychological profiles of these individual characters? Well, I think I created Frida Linton the way I wanted her to be. That there's very little written about Frida. In fact, what I could find was uh, in MI6 and FBI files, which you could get. Couldn't get anything in Canada because they're still closed. They're, they're frozen. Freedom of Information Act doesn't allow you to access them here yet, believe it or not, hmm. 73 years later. Um, I, I took a fair bit of license with her. I think with the other ones, Gazenko and the very dashing diplomat, Nikolai Zavot, there's quite a bit that I, I relied on research. He was just a very handsome, very dashing fellow who, you know, survived all of this. He, even when he was called back to the Soviet Union, he did go to a gulag for a while, as I have it in my book, but they didn't murder him. Well, but to write these characters, you've got to kind of know them a little bit. I mean, that, that's it's one thing about writing fiction where you're making up the background and you're kind of developing the characters in your head. But in your case, like you said, there's a lot written about Gazenko and about Zabotin. So you, you basically have to, to learn not just their history, but, but who, who they, they are. are. You have to get inside their heads, um, however you do that. And, and I think the, the thing I love about historical fiction is is just that, as you're describing it. Um, it's history. It's an interpretation of history. And so you're taking characters, researching them, and really trying to put their internal monologues on paper. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. You do a good job, I think, in this book also of, of capturing the mood of the times. Obviously, you grew up hearing about a lot of this, but how much research did you do into how Canada was? Your, you're not old enough to remember certainly how Canada was during World War II. You're nowhere near 
old enough to remember. So how did you get the the, the correct mood? Because mood is not something that you can really get it's just from reading history, history books. No, I guess you can't. Well, you read. And also, yeah. I spent many years in Ottawa. And, of course, I lived in Toronto, where part, part of the book takes place. And there are sections of town where the old Toronto exists, let's say. Mm-hmm. So I could be, I walked around those streets a lot. I just walked. I walked along the old streets of Toronto to feel what it would be like to be living there in the 1920s and the 1930s. Did the same as, did the same in Ottawa, actually. And little by little, you begin to live your story. If, if, if it starts to work for you, you're almost living in that period of time. And yes, I wasn't around during the Second World War, but I certainly heard a lot about it, both from my family and then studied a great deal of Canadian and other literature of the Second World War, which I still find fascinating and read all the time. How, how, how much of an impact did the outing of the Canadian spies have on Canadian society? Because, I mean, you look at the United States and the impact of the outing of the spies here really brought McCarthyism in, a, in a, an almost, uh, not almost, a dramatic overreaction to, uh, to Soviet intelligence. Was there a similar reaction in Canada, or like everything else, was it more muted than, than us going crazy here? It's kind of like watching what's going on now in the United yeah. States compared to what's going on in Canada. The Gazenko story is not known in Canada. If I mention it to most people, they don't know what I'm talking about. So even though it's been highly documented that it it was the spark that started the Cold War and that our Prime Minister, uh, Mackenzie King, the next day was told to come to Washington where he met with Truman. Mm -hmm. I mean, they knew what what this meant. But here, not, not too much, really, except for the people who were directly involved. And those people had relatives and a lot of them were jailed, you know, for, for treason. And Fred Rose, the MP, was sent back, to, was jailed for six years in Kingston Penitentiary, developed tuberculosis, was sent back to Poland, um, and was robbed of his citizenship. So I think it was a kind of closed knowing. Certainly people on the left um, in the Communist Party and around it still talk about it. So whenever I get books like this, um, I'm always worried that the writer is going to be a great writer, uh, but not know anything about espionage. And and the problem vice versa is that I'll get books from someone who is a expert in espionage, but they can't write their way out of a paper bag. So it's nice to see in your case where uh, there is a clear understanding of the world in which these people were operating in the world in which a lot of our listeners operate today. So how did you go about researching some of the basics, the ins and outs of espionage, the terminology, understanding how it worked, not only in modern day, but going back to the 1930s and 40s? I did a lot of research, you know. First of all, I read, you know, I have to tell you, I did read a lot of spy literature, um, spy thrillers. John Le Carre is a wonderful source. Those led dates. I mean, these people were involved in espionage themselves, and they understood it. And and I don't know, Vince, you know, there's some point that you get writing 
where you just know what you have to look for. For instance, right. how would I know that you would use a one-time pack? Well, I did five years ago. But there came a point where I had to research that sort of thing. I had to research the call about cryptology. I had to research what was Venona. I mean, that became one of the most fascinating things to me that the Americans were trying to decode the Soviet wartime code. And I'm amazed to hear even today only about half of it was actually decoded. So one thing leads to another. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like being a it's like being a researcher, and and there's a serendipitous nature to it. You're in a library or you're online, and one thing takes you to the next, and before you know it, you have a full picture. But I also think that plot and character, which are the basic, uh, you know, tools of fiction, do take you down the right roads. Right. They do. They help you to go in the direction you need to go to make the book seem real. One thing that I found fascinating in this book, and I think the thing that some people may read this and see that it stands out arguably as much or more than anything else, is the relationship between the intelligence chief or the handler and the intelligence officer, in this case, Zabotin uh, and Linton, uh, and their, their complicated relationship. Uh, that is certainly a love-hate relationship. It's, it's certainly one built on trust, but also not always trusting. A lot of suspicion involved in that as well. Um, how, how did you, did you go, go about, about creating, creating that, that dynamic? Well, I think that, just imagine who she was. Frida Linton was born in a tiny little village on the Polish-Russian border. Um, she's 15 when she arrives in Canada. And then she finds out a number of years later that a man she knew from who was a, a count uh, in her village is running espionage out of the Soviet embassy on Charlotte Street in Ottawa. How could she trust him entirely when she knew that he had actually led a pogrom against her village on right. behalf of the Soviets. How, how, how could she trust him? And how, what would be his relationship to her um, when he would really see her as an underling entirely? But they do, they do love each other. They just don't trust each other. How much of the... You, you bounce back and forth between the time period of the story and the end of their lives. Uh, how much of that was thoroughly researched, or was that artistic license? That was, that, uh, I'll tell you, there's pieces at the end. Well, the, the book begins in Chernobyl, right. if you don't mind me mentioning that. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So uh, the very first few pages um, uh, is, it, it is, as you pointed out, in the first person in Frida's voice, takes place two years after the meltdown of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. And uh, I had to do a great deal of research about that and did. I, ha I, I read so many books and I read a lot about nuclear um, fission, which I didn't understand at all before and how that came about. So all of that is based on research. But why did I set this? Why are there episodes in Chernobyl at the beginning of the book, at the end, and scattered throughout the book? Because... I felt that I had to show where Soviet communism ended up right. uh, and the disappointment and the betrayal that it led. 
and even in that case, I, it, it doesn't read as heavy-handed, so I have to give you credit for that as well, because there would be an easy way to go really over the top and kind of, especially with your history of your family and be uh, you know, kind of obnoxiously heavy-handed in some cases of saying, ha, 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 you know, look how horrible this is. But it, it just kind of seems more melancholy than, than anything else. Because it was so sad mm. at a certain level. I mean, I, I'm taking, I'm writing this book from the point of view of people who thought they were going to change the world. And I get that. They thought they were going to make a better world. If we recall, from 1929 onwards, until almost until the war, uh, the world was in a huge economic depression. And a lot of the people who joined the Communist Party were poor people. They were immigrants. They felt that they were doing the right thing. And that's why at the very beginning of the book, I have an epigram by uh, the writer Masha Gessen, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And she says resistance could take the shape of insisting on making a choice even when the choice is framed as one between unacceptable options. I think I'm melancholy because I don't know what else they could have done at that moment in time. It seems so clear-cut now to us because we've seen the fall of the Soviet Union, we've seen where communism has worked, and we're living with situations where it's still so clear today. But if you put your head back into the 1930s, and you're poor, and you're an immigrant, and and you're not really accepted by society, certainly not in Canada. Canada is still a very British, stiff upper lip country at, the, at that time, still is to a certain extent. And they were on the outskirts. They were very marginalized people. They wanted a society that was built on equality. And for some reason, and I understand it, but not entirely, even if they saw what had happened in the Soviet Union when they were young. When they came over here, they still believed in the dream. Right. Yeah. So let me ask you, we, we've mentioned the Gazenko affair several times, and, and I think our audience, you said people in Canada don't know this story very well. Certainly people in the United States may not know it well either. I mean, we have an artifact here in the museum. Um, we talked about Gazenko not being listened to when he first tried to hand this information over in the lonely night he spent in his apartment, well, he was armed. He had a pistol with him in case the NKVD or the GRU showed up, and that pistol is in our museum, uh, provided to us by CSIS, by Canadian Intelligence. And so when people look at it, they have no idea about this story. So can you talk a little bit about how Igor Gazenko, a relatively low-level cipher clerk at the Soviet Embassy in Canada, is what a lot of historians point to as That's the clear, clear beginning, beginning of, of the Cold War. It is. Gazenko was only 20 when he defected. He was a very young man um, with a wife and a child and a child on the way. I can, there were mistakes made, as there often are, you would understand that, where he was able to smuggle information out of the vault of the Soviet embassy. And he didn't want to go back. I mean, he really, he knew probably from decrypting so much, but so many of the codes what his life would be like if he returned to the Soviet Union. Also, I think the boat, the military attaché, was not a disciplinarian, if you know what I mean. Right. He did not, he really loved his life. And you probably have seen Soviet officials 
over here in your lifetime. I know I have. When I was a student in Ottawa, you could really live the good life out of the Soviet embassy. Put it that way, huh? Right. And I think Zabon was living the good life. He was the darling of the diplomatic circle in Ottawa. He knew people in Washington. He knew people in New York. He wanted to stay, too. He found... Gazenko was a kind of jolly fellow, told jokes, so forth and so on. And I don't think he was keeping an eye on Gazenko as closely as he should have. Okay, so Gazenko smuggles 200 documents by stuffing them in his shirt and walks out of, and walks out of the Soviet embassy with them. These documents, nobody knew that the Soviets were spying in North America at that time. As you so clearly pointed out, they were our best friends. They won the war on the Eastern Front. Stalin was a friend. He walks out. Nobody believes him in Ottawa. You've got, you've got the guts, right? And, and the information starts to... No one in Canada really knew what to do with him. They sent him to Camp Axe uh, uh, near Trenton, and they started to debrief him. And the more they debriefed him, the more they realized how serious this was. And there was, of course, information about atomic secrets in some of his, in, in some of his cryptograms. Like specifically about Alan Nunmay, right? I mean, that was the... Yes. The key person here was a British scientist, a member, well, he had been a member of the Communist Party. He knew the Cambridge Five, and... Um, he had worked at Los Alamos with close fugues. He bet he was sent up to Chalk River, which where they developed a prototype of a nuclear reactor called the Zeep. Now this is where research comes in, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, Nunmay had quite a few secrets under his belt, um, and that was what was coming through in those cryptographs. So once the Americans got a hold of this. I think things changed drastically in that they realized that there was going to be, um, put it this way, there was going to be conflict after the war, after Second World War was settled. And and so it did, it, it did ignite an interest, which of course you see later in America um, with the Rosenbergs. Now, what did we do here that was different? Well, we handled it in a typically Canadian way. We didn't talk about it. <laughs> there's, there's very little that you can find in the newspapers about, I mean, tiny little excerpts of stuff, but nothing nothing really major. No one was sent to the electric chair, um, like the Rosenbergs. Some people were put in prison. Other people were just let go and went on with their life. It, it depended what they had done, and I think it depended probably on how they testified. There was no court case, as in the case of the Rosenbergs. There was what we call in Canada a royal commission, um, which can be even stricter than a court case. People were taken from their homes and held for long periods of time without habeas corpus. So I'm not saying that the people weren't punished, but it probably reflected more of the situation in Britain when they knew what what um, their double agents were doing, when they knew what Philby and his friends were doing, and didn't act on it for years. I mean, 
let's remember that what Donald McLean was doing when Gazenko defected. He was the first secretary to the British Embassy in Washington. Right. He was the head of the Joint Committee on Atomic Affairs between Britain, Canada, and the United States. He knew everything. Nun May knew everything that Klaus Fuchs knew. There probably wasn't a whole lot of secret information left to be passed. I mean, they had done it by the time that Gazenko defected. They'd probably gotten most of what they needed to get. And in fact, I think it's three years later that the Russians finally detonate their own atomic bomb. It's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of closing the barn door when the horses are long, long gone by that point. Right, and, and, but it was Gazenko that first alerted the intelligence communities in North America to this because we, you can, if you put your head back into that period, the Soviets were our best friends. Right. Why would they be spying on us? Why would they even want the formula for the atomic bomb? What do they need it for? Well, especially the war is over. You know, the Nazis have been defeated. So let me, let me ask you this, because, you know, you, you learn to love uh, and certainly respect and sympathize with uh, your main character, Frida Litton. Uh, what, what finally, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but people can certainly, she's real, so you can look this up if you want to anyway. But yeah. so what, what, what eventually what happens, happens to her? her? Well, you mean in real life? Yeah, in real life, yeah. In real life. Well, she got away. She got away. There were two, two or three people who slipped through the hands of the RCMP as they got out of Canada. She was one of them. She was, and this is in the book, so I hope people will read it to find out. She was having an affair. She was the secretary for John Grierson. Now, John Grierson in Canada is a very renowned figure. He was the, the head of the the first head of the National Film Board, and Canada um, is, is renowned for making good documentary films. Still goes on. We're good documentarians. Grierson was a Brit. He was from Scotland. He was in at Oxford or Cambridge at the same time as the Cambridge Five. He, we think, and the documentation shows that that Frida recruited him. Um, so he, he, he's basically the John Ford of, of the time. Yes, no. that's right. And he was a very charming fellow on top of everything else. And, and he made some films for the National Film Board that were propaganda films for the Soviet Union. Now, that wouldn't have seemed strange in 1941 or 42. Um, but when you look back on the film now... You, you, you do, and you can still get it from the National Billboard in Canada, you can see that he's a fellow traveler. Now, he was brought before this Royal Commission once they found, in 1946, once they found out who the spies were from Gazenko's papers. He testified briefly and sharply, and then he shortly after um, was, how can I put it, let go from his position as head of the Wartime Information Bureau in Canada. He was being considered as head of the new documentary film center, uh, either in New York or Washington. That never happened, needless to say. Mm-hmm. And really, his career was over. There was enough. There was enough information on him to know that he had been 
a fellow traveler and that it was Frida, really, who recruited him. So somehow she eluded the authorities, and she was followed for many years after that. There's a lot of documentation by the FBI and the MI6 about where she was. Um, in the end, I don't know if I should tell you this, but <laughs> in the end, she had a child, and she came back to Canada, and they just let her go, and she disappeared, and no one ever knows what happened to her. She must have, been, she must have lived at their well, there, I, I did research on this after I had read this, and there, there are articles from around that time where there's a little bit of a scrambling around to bring her back and, and try her for what she did. But they didn't? No. No, they didn't. They, by that time, I don't know why they didn't, but they didn't. And maybe they had other fish to fry, or maybe um, she didn't. They just, the Canadians just wanted to forget it, which right. would be possible in Canada. I mean, I don't know what happened to everyone in the United States. We all know the story of the Rosenbergs, but how much that branched out into smaller players. Well, there's, there's The last question I want to ask you is, it, it, pop culture and even, you know, straightforward historical readings, there is a lot of conversation about how the Soviets treated their spies once they came home. How well was she treated? Because she certainly brought back some extraordinarily important information for Soviet intelligence. You would think she would be given uh, a pretty good life when she moved back behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, how, how well, well was, was she treated? treated? Not that well. No. Not that well. Um, she, she wasn't treated well, and either was Fred Rhodes, who was really also, you know, the, the hierarchy went this way. Nikolai Zabotin, the military attache, Fred Rhodes, the MP, then down to Frida. So even once, once they got to the Soviet Union, they weren't really treated. They weren't treated greatly. I don't know if you've been watching the Americans on yeah, television. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, which of course is just such a delight to watch. But you know, life wasn't that great for them when they returned. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't think it was. I, I think, for all intents and purposes, her life was over, as was Fred Rose's life. They were the only two that went back, and the rest of the people who stayed here, well, some of them were in prison, and uh, or they just disappeared, or by 1956, as you know, when Khrushchev came to power, the crimes of Stalin right. were outlined by him, at, I think it was the 20th Congress or 21st Congress. 20th, yep, 20th Party Congress, secret speech. Yes, the speech. And I still know people and talk to people in Canada all the time about the effect that speech had on members of the Communist Party or members of the left here. And it's astonishing. I, I had a conversation with someone this summer about that, where they still talk about it. It was the turning point in their lives. Well, the whole policy of de-Stalinization and letting the world know. He didn't mean to let the world know. That was a, an intelligence coup where intelligence agencies from the West were able to smuggle the speech out and let the world know about it. So, mm -hmm. And, you know, now, like, I think this, you know, I have to say that I think this is so, it's so timely because as we see, put it this way, I think for the very longest of time, and you could, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, intelligence agencies in the West really saw the threat coming from the West. 
No, I, I think so. I think that's certainly true. Um, it, well, intelligence agencies are seeing threats based on political considerations as well. And what I mean by that is the leadership above the intelligence agencies, where, they're, where they perceive national security threats, in a lot of cases, the agencies are following along. And certainly during the Cold War, anyone even leaning in the direction of the left was considered a perceived threat. Just look at American policy in Latin America to back, back that, that idea up. Yes, exactly. But now we're living in a new age where there's a huge threat, but it may be from the right, right populism. And, I mean, you may agree with me or not, but I, as a person who, who grew up with McCarthyism, I mean, I knew all about it. It was talked about in my family endlessly because they were scared. If they were here or if they were in the United States, they were frightened that something might happen to them. And, and now what I see is intelligence services and the Justice Department realizing that the threat may come from the right. I won't mention my personal beliefs one way or the other, but if anyone's been listening for the last four years, they know exactly where I come down on that. But, <laughs> but I get nasty emails if I bring up anything, so I won't do that. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, and I think that the, um, it was so easy in the Cold War. I'm not taking anything away from the Cold Warriors who, who gave up their lives or, or dedicated their lives to doing this, but it was certainly easy to identify the enemy to identify the bad guy. And it's much more uh, nebulous today uh, where there's potential adversaries in every direction. Absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is, uh, you know, I turn, I'm hooked, of course, um, you know, watching cable news practically 24-7. And every night it's a different story. But still, when I see what's happening in Poland, when I see what's happening in Hungary, when I see what's happening, um, I hate to say it, but in your government in Washington, I think that... It's a much more nebulous situation. Very, very difficult to see where the threats are coming from. And who, I mean, you might see it, but we, we writers, we average people, it is a bit surprising to see that it's the intelligence services who are taking this to task. Right. What would, what would we do? What, what would we be doing if, 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 if your services weren't doing what could befall us? I mean, you know, I don't know if you've heard Timothy Snyder's, uh, he has a new book, the man who, the academic who wrote Bloodlands. Right. I'm very fond of his work, and it was really, I should say, that it was reading his book Bloodlands that helped me to decide to write this novel about what happened between the territories between Berlin and Moscow during 1914 to 1946, you know, the descent into hell, really. And he's got a new book about what's happened now, and he, he gave, uh, there's a video of it uh, available, and, and he talks about, you know, the path to unfreedom. Well, the path to unfreedom, it doesn't just come from the left, it can come from the right, too. So this is your second historical novel. We talked about The Cook's Temptation before this. Is there a third on the way? Is that maybe a topic that you might pick up on yourself? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm starting the third one. And I'm, I'm going to continue on with, I'm going to follow in the path of the Red Sparrow. I'm going to follow with my character, Frida Linton. Okay. And um, it, the next book is going to be set in, uh, in New Mexico and Los Alamos. It'll be set completely there. Oh, well, then we're definitely going to have to have you back to talk about that once that's done. 
Uh, Joyce Wayne is the author of the new book, Last Night of the World, uh, which is a spy historical fiction. I, I, would, I would argue it's more the historical than on the fiction side. So it's definitely worth a read, especially if you've been inundated with just dozens of kind of stodgy academic nonfiction books about espionage. This is a great way to kind of make yourself feel good that you're not reading a full-fledged spy fiction book and not, you know, quote-unquote wasting your time doing that. Still learning a little bit about the real world while enjoying someone who actually can write. So we really appreciate you taking the time, Joyce. Uh, uh, joining us today on Spycast. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Hey, everybody. 